Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Let's get started. Glad to see you. This quarter is about the Godhead, and in the last several weeks, as you know, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Tonight's the last night for us to do that, and then we'll branch off from there to the Father and the Son. And I'm aware of the fact, going into this, that, that there are things that I'm going to say tonight if we wrap this up that may uh, seem duplicated in other classes that we've talked about. That's not altogether true, but it may be true in some cases. But I really want to finish with this discussion. This is, this is something that I want to really talk about, and I believe it's very critical, and I want to give you a perspective about the Holy Spirit in reference to this subject, and, and uh, so I want to plant some seeds in your mind about this. And it, it's, about, it's about Calvinism. I know that we're, not only are we not Calvinists, most of us don't know a great deal about Calvinism. I, I wouldn't care a snap about it, except that the, the doctrine of Calvinism, the, the package of Calvinism, has infiltrated so many religions. And because I believe that there's a critical point about the Holy Spirit today that works very hard to get into us, it's just not right. And that is uh, what the Holy Spirit does to affect person before he becomes a Christian to save him and what the Holy Spirit does to sanctify the Christian or the person after he becomes a Christian and whether or not the Holy Spirit works personally and directly on the hearts of, a, of people. I believe he does not. I, I, and I, I know that I need to preface this by saying that I have known some good people who disagreed with me about this, who I think that they're still good people, and I think that, you know, one day we'll all go to glory and they'll learn better. I'm just playing. But uh, having said that, I want you to know, I want you to think about this from this perspective that I want to talk about tonight. And, um, and of course, this is a discussion, and anything you want to bring up and talk about will just be fine. Calvin, John Calvin, who, by the way, was born in 1509, he was a French theologian, did not originate the doctrine that we typically think of as Calvinism. But I repeat, it's important because Calvinism in Christendom has, has found its parts in lots of different religions. A person doesn't have to be a full-blown Calvinist to really believe some of the tenets of Calvinism, in particular, once saved, always saved. I know that you're familiar with that concept. Well, it's Calvinism, and um, so even, even religions that would say they're not Calvinists uh, borrow from it. But I don't think that's the only one. And I, I would argue that the idea that the Holy Spirit personally and directly operates on us before and after becoming Christians is also part of Calvinism, or it derived from Calvinism. One of the basic controversies in the early church developed over the nature of man. 
Tertullian and others advocated an idea that man inherited the sin of Adam. Don't discount that that that's important. It's important. That we were born inheriting sin. So when you came into the world, you had sin already attached to you, not by your own choosing, but by the fact that it was inherited. Others opposed this view and said that babies were born innocent. But you get to the fourth century and you had two major schools of thought. Pelagius and Augustine. They debated over inherited or hereditary sin. They they argued over grace and, and whether or not we had free moral agency. Did human beings really have the ability to choose to follow Christ? Or was that all something that God did? And of course, predestination. To what degree did God impose His will personally on our lives? To what degree did He do that? And and then the, the flip side of that would be, to what degree do we have choice in, in what we will do in relation to Christ? And by and by, Augustine won. And his doctrines were largely adopted by the Roman church. So they took the view that man inherited the sins of Adam, that man was so depraved that he had lost his ability really to resist sin, and that God had predestined every event on the earth, whether good or evil. And so Calvin then later formulated this into the tulip. And you understand that that acrostic, and we've talked some about that. Let's just... Let's just touch the surface of the tulip. Calvinism, T, total hereditary depravity. Total hereditary depravity. That is to say that that the human race is born black with sin, inherited from Adam. You were born depraved, totally prone to sin, and therefore could not do, choose any good. And actually, that included anything to do with respect to your own salvation. Total hereditary depravity. The you was unconditional election. I want you to really underscore in your mind the word unconditional election. So people would be saved if they were fortunate enough to be one of the picked ones, arbitrarily picked by God. Unconditionally, they would be saved. Now, they might show outward signs of what we would call obedience to God. But it was really beside the point. They, they were in, and the number of saved could not be diminished from. The number of lost could not be added to nor diminished from. Unconditional election. Arbitrarily. Arbitrarily chosen. Number three, the L. This one always just chills me. Limited atonement. Limited atonement. I don't have to explain that, really. Limited atonement means that the cross, John 3.16 notwithstanding, is not for everybody. The cross didn't benefit the whole world, and it wasn't really offered to the whole world because God had arbitrarily already chosen who would be saved and who would be damned. And so, I mean... I can imagine people like Calvin maybe believing this, 
buying into this false doctrine. I just can't imagine them saying it out loud that the, that the cross was limited atonement. Not all men will be saved. And since God supposedly does everything to save man who he chooses, it followed, I mean, it was logical progression. Followed that Calvin must teach that Christ did not die for everybody. He died not for the lost, only for those who had already been chosen to be saved, those that God arbitrarily picked. There's no sense, no sense in which Jesus died for those damned people. No sense. They were damned. They were chosen to be lost. They were going to be lost. And he did not die for them. Number four, irresistible grace. And in your mind, I want you to underline irresistible. Irresistible. That is to say that if you were one of the picked, fortunate enough to be picked by God to be one of the saved, arbitrarily chosen, it's just the luck of the draw, your salvation was irresistible. You couldn't choose otherwise. Since man was totally depraved, he would resist God, and it would be necessary for the Holy Spirit to just overwhelm this resistance. And so this irresistible grace is supposedly accomplished by a direct operation of the Holy Spirit to convict and convert and sanctify a man who is depraved. And then the last one, perseverance of the saints. We say, once saved, always saved. But I I want you to know that while this is utterly false doctrine, it was a logical progression. So, again, the argument is that if you had nothing to do with being saved, you didn't choose that then you surely, I mean, it was given to you by God, and it was irresistible. He, he just forced your salvation on you if you're one of the, the elect. If you didn't have anything to do with getting it, you can't have anything to do with losing it. It isn't about you. I mean, it's not about your choices. You don't have those choices, right? Therefore, Calvinist teaching of total depravity, I would argue, was the mother of the idea that we have a direct and personal operation of the Holy Spirit on us today. Before we go farther, though, and I, I took this piece of paper today, and I made a list of, uh, of five things that were problems to people, I mean to Calvin and, 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 and his children after him that promoted this tulip. Um, it created some pretty serious problems, logically, and, and I, I know this, I'm sure this is not an exhaustive list, and if you have any more, pitch them in. But here we go, ready? How could a man know for sure he was one of the elect? Well, I mean, the answer would be, you just know. Yeah, yeah, right. I tell you what, some of the, the leading Calvinists have, by and by in their lives, yielded to egregious sin. And they fall away, which is just a mess. I'm telling you, that's a problem. Because whatever, you know, the answer that the Calvinists will say about this great shepherd in their church or this great preacher, that somebody that they thought was just so very wonderful as a Christian, now he falls away. It's contrary to their doctrine. And so the response would be, if they lost it, if he lost it, he never had it. He was never saved. Yeah, excuse me, but that's not the only problem. The problem is, did he believe he was saved? Yeah. You believe you're saved? 
How do you know? And the answer is you don't. In Calvinism, one of the logical problems was you, you wouldn't know whether or not you were one of those who was fortunate enough to be handpicked by God to be saved or to be damned. You wouldn't know. Ultimately, your feelings would be that on which you would base this. But here's number two. It's Jesus. Jesus is a problem for Calvinism. Jesus was not just the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. Now, why is that a problem for Calvinism? Anybody want to jump in there? Yeah, so if we inherited sin, it comes right through the bloodline, and if you're born, you're, you're in. But they couldn't have Jesus' sin. And so how do you fix it? Anybody want to enjoy this with me? How do you fix the fact, if you believe in inherited sin, how do you fix the fact that Jesus was born of a woman? Fix it. How? The Immaculate Conception. Beautiful. There's a humor in this. Maybe it's a dark humor. I don't know. But it's, it's humorous to, because what you just said, Keith, what Keith said was the immaculate conception is what fixes it. Because according, and that, by the way, that doctrine didn't come from the Roman church until 1854. Did you know that? Immaculate conception, 1854. Because they had a problem. They had a problem. How do you fix it? Immaculate conception. All right, so which, is, which says that at the second that Mary was conceived, uh, she was sinless. She did not receive the inheritance of those sins. She didn't. And so, again, and Keith put his finger right on it. What about the generation before that? I mean, I guess they just figured they, they stopped the flow right there at that point. Jesus was a problem. Was he born in sin? And um, so they had to create, it's kind of like if you tell a lie, you have to tell another one to kind of cover up that one. The Immaculate Conception. And and if you look up, and I did when I was preparing this lesson, you could look it up and and, um, you'll find an admission, or at least I did, that, that while it's true that the Bible doesn't teach the Immaculate Conception, that over the centuries, over the years, that these people who, who held to Calvinism believed that the implication of the scriptures pointed to this in some ways. And so and it's, it's hard to defend something that simply isn't true. The beauty of Mary is not that she is perfect. The beauty of Mary is that she was a human being. Faithful, yes. Angelic and perfect, no. Here's the third thing I wrote down. We would have no way of knowing if a little child who dies is in paradise or in the fires of torment. Got it? If we come into this world with inherited sin, and the way God handles that is by arbitrarily choosing who will be saved or who will be damned, then the fact is that thing is already sealed when a baby is born, it's already decided. <laughs> You can't increase or diminish from the number. You can't. It's all fixed. That's Calvinism. And I mean, I don't know what you do about that, about babies who die as, as children who, who die. 
Um, I know that I know the answer um, has been in the minds of many. Are you ready for this? What? What? Can you say it? Infant baptism. Infant baptism. And of course, I don't know how that, you still have trouble meshing it. But you know that in Catholicism, infant baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Just let that soak in. In in relation to this Calvinistic stuff. Number four. I think with Calvinism, there wouldn't be any need for evangelism. Why would you? Now you might say, well, I can teach people how to glorify God more. And that, okay. But you, you won't be able to teach them the gospel in order for them to choose to become Christians and be saved because, again, the number can't be increased or diminished. And then I get number five. And this is really where I'm going with all this. Calvinism is popularized today, I guess, in a number of ways. But the two main ones that come to the surface for me is the impossibility of apostasy. It's number one, that you cannot fall from grace, that once saved, always saved. Now, I really want you to think through that and, and understand why that is a logical progression in this. You didn't have anything to do with choosing to be saved, so you can't have anything to do with choosing to be lost. If you're in, it had nothing to do with you. It really had nothing to do with you. So you can't be lost. But I would also say that, it, that, that Calvinism is popularized, and this is an opinion, but I believe that it's popularized by the belief that we have a personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit who helps people to become Christians and then helps them to be Christians or guides them in a way separate from Scripture. Is that related to Calvinism? That says God looked at at a, a people, a human race that was totally depraved by heredity, and he took over the whole system and then just chose. And so uh, he's the one who makes these decisions. Well, the Holy Spirit, in the view that says that he personally uh, indwells us and he guides us to become Christians or he guides us separate from the word to live a Christian life, uh, involves God at a level that sounds a great deal like Calvinism to me. Anybody want to make a comment here? Sir. Oh, I'm sorry. A little louder, please. I'm getting older. The question is, if a baby was born and you didn't have a chance to baptize him, I guess in Catholicism, I don't know how that goes in Catholicism because they believe baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I mean, sprinkling a baby. So I don't know about that. In Calvinism, I I don't, I mean, it doesn't make any difference because they're already either saved or damned. It's, you know, uh, yes, sir.
That's the last part again. How can they justify Calvinism? Well, once saved, always saved is a part of Calvinism. And so, I mean, it all fits together. It's that a person can't be lost because he didn't have anything to do with being saved. He didn't choose this. God gave him, again, irresistible grace. Keith. What's interesting is there are, there are several denominations that claim to be two-point Calvinists or three-point Calvinists, for example. And on its face, we may say, well, there are, for example, we might read a commentary and say, well, I, I, I agree with that, but I may not, I may not agree. So on its face, John Calvin himself said that you can't take one without taking all of them. Because, as you said, it is a logical progression. Because we are totally afraid and we have the inability to choose, God unconditionally chose for us. And because he unconditionally chose for us, then the limited atonement is for those, and because again, God shows we can't choose for ourselves, we can't, I mean, we can't resist the will of God, and if it's God's will, we can't undo it. So it is that logical progression. So to say that, well, I believe in once saved, always saved, but I don't believe in, say, limited atonement. Well, the once saved, always saved is a direct result of the limited atonement, because the limited atonement is a direct result of so you, you, if you take one of it, logically you have to take all of it, right? So that's how, that's how the, the once saved, always saved doctrine can exist in, say, a denominational church, but someone rejects the idea of the atonement because they're trying to break but they, they're not really considering the ramifications of what you're actually teaching by holding on to any I suppose the only way that I could do it is if, and I think this happens, I think Calvinism diminished the emphasis people put on the Bible and studying and knowing the scriptures. Spirit operates in you personally separate from the Word. And there comes a time when what the Spirit has told you is contradictive, contradictory in some way to the Word. Which one would you pick? And you'd pick the one where He talked to you personally. I think that it's inevitable that Calvinism distracted from people's uh, commitment to the Scripture. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if I was a Calvinist, I'm not, I don't know if I would study the Scripture much. Does that make sense to you? Why would you do it, Don? that if he was a, a Calvinist, I, I think what he, he, he said, I would just eat, drink, and be merry, and 
Why not? Because, and, and the response from a Calvinist, I think, would be that, that you should be thankful enough for your salvation that you would want to glorify God with your life. The point is, though, that you, you still say, well, I can't be lost. And so should I, should I worry about that? Why should I worry? Why should I be concerned? Or I can't be saved, and so I'm headed to torment anyhow. It's very concerning to me. And really, my, my discussion tonight is about the Holy Spirit, even though we're talking about Calvinism. I just want you to see this, the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the context of Calvinism. Um, I, I think that Calvinism surely diminishes from people's appreciation for Bible study and commitment to it and obedience. And There's a litany of things. Uh, anybody else? Yes? Well, we talked about this irresistible and unconditional, and I agree with you that there's no point in evangelism if those things are true. And I would further say, what's the point of the church? Why do we, why do we even have a church if all of those things are true? We don't need any of that because the Holy Spirit's going to do this directly. To me, what you just said is logical. I think that, in fairness, a Calvinist would say that that God gave us salvation to help us be righteous and to his glory and that we want to offer him our glory. But you, st- you, know, you still end up shaking your head, I think. Right, Mark? talking about his teaching in prison and you have as he put it a mixed bag of, of ideas about Christianity and religion and um, to ask the question do you, do you know that you're saved and how do you know is it based on that I just feel forgiven I feel saved and, and uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful reality the scripture to be able to go and say and this, is not, and this is not to brag and it's not based on our merit but that we can go to the scripture and say this is what it says to do to be saved and I've, I've done that, and then I'm continuing, continuing to walk in the light and to learn more of the Scriptures and to be close to my Lord because I know that that's essential to being saved, that I choose it, I choose to be faithful to Him. The fact is, isn't that the point of the human race anyhow? Well, how would you describe the whole point of God creating mankind if not for His glory? that he would raise up, there would be people throughout the generations, the centuries, who would choose him. All right. Here's some basic Bible doctrines in the last few minutes that we have. God has a way, and his way is the only way. I can say that as emphatically as I want. It is just true. 
It's his way or we will be lost. That's it. Many think that any way will be acceptable to God. We're all going to heaven just different ways. It's never been true. And here's what Jesus said, and you're familiar with Matthew 7 and 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's written for Christendom. It's written for a pluralistic kind of denominational kind of world where we all claim adherence to Christ and we have all these thousands of different variations. Listen to the verses it goes on. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, these people who call Jesus Lord, not everybody that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, in, that, have we, in the judgment day, have we not prophesied in your name? In thy name cast out demons. In thy name done many wonderful works. I'll profess unto you, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Parenthetically, by the way. See if you think this is logical. This is what I think. Who are those people that are very devoutly religious, but I never knew you? And what is the difference between people who Jesus would claim to know and people he doesn't know? Is there a line of demarcation at which Jesus says, you're mine, I know you? And what if, if there is, and there is, of course, what is that line? It's obeying the gospel. And your name is then written in the Lamb's book of life. But, but think about in Christendom um, how many religious teachers teach that baptism has nothing to do with your salvation and will not practice such a baptism they won't do it. They won't believe it. Um, contrary to plain scriptures, I, I would argue that, that the ones Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 21 are people who might be, they call on his name and they do many wonderful works, but they've never obeyed the gospel. And, and he would say of these people, I never knew you. But anyway, back to the point. God has a way. It's the only way. And he has communicated his way to us in Revelation. You would not know the mind of God were it not for his revealing himself to us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. He's revealed himself. It's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete completely furnished unto all good works. That is so comprehensive, isn't it? I don't know how you get outside of that. Every good work. Every good work.
That's right. And so what Keith is saying is that passage says that the scripture furnishes us to every good work and there's nothing left after that. that. So when you say, I have the scripture, but I also have the Holy Spirit guiding me personally, you have to ask the question, didn't the spirit just step on the word of God? I mean, no, I mean, no disrespect by saying that, but didn't he just contradict it? And then if you add to that mix that the Spirit does not speak to everybody, even among those who believe He speaks to them, not to everybody, then, then where have you gone? Where are you? And, and you, you know, it, Calvinism was, was just fraught with these logical problems that um, demonstrate that it's just simply false. But what I, would, what I would want to have you know and to think about about the Holy Spirit uh, is that the Holy Spirit took part in every single conversion of every man or woman who ever was saved. Is that a true statement? Huh? Yeah, that's a true statement. That's not the question. I would also <laughs> say that the Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian. Is that a true statement? Yeah. The question is how? In what way does he dwell in us? And in what way did the Holy Spirit participate in the conversion of everybody who ever became a Christian? The answer is through the word which he gave us, which he presented by revelation to inspired men who wrote it down and then confirmed it. Now bear in mind the miraculous was for the purpose. It was by the Holy Spirit. And the miraculous, though temporary, was to confirm that this was from heaven. And so when you, when you have men stand up and they start preaching, how do you know? How do you know that it was from God? And the answer is, they would perform those miracles. And then you would say, talk to me some more. I will listen to you because you're from heaven. Right? That's how you do it. That's how the Holy Spirit did it. John 16, so I'm glad that you did. Um, one of the things that's been brought to me since the teaching of the class is John 16, where in ch chapter 14 also, um, where the Lord said that he would send the comfort of the Holy Spirit, he would guide you into all the truth and bring to your remembrance everything I've, told, I've taught you. And the person who brought this to me, who's a fine person, but confused about the Spirit, said... I'm just so glad I have that. I'm so glad that the Spirit brings to my remembrance. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go back, go back. 
those words were not said to all of us. Those words were said to the apostles. And, and it was time for Jesus to go to the cross, and you have this discourse, and what he's, he's talking to those apostles. And it would be okay with me. In fact, it would make my work a lot easier if I didn't have to study. I spend a large amount of my time in the books, a large amount of my time, every single week, because I don't have the Holy Spirit to guide me into those things. I have to study them, but the, but the apostles didn't. The apostles had it directly from heaven, and it confirmed the word, and it was the way that, I mean, it, it wouldn't matter that you had revelation if you didn't have inspiration. It, it's revealed from heaven by the Holy Spirit, and it's, it uh, was inspired in those men. They had inspiration. Um, who, who wants to make a comment here? What, what, anybody? What if, I, what if I said, yeah, but I think that this view makes uh, in the Holy Spirit dwelling us in us personally. Doesn't that keep religion from being so ritualistic? And, and legalistic. And, and so, well, how would you respond to that? You know, churches that have the Spirit are not so legalistic. And so, therefore, we shouldn't push away this view. Right there, so back on the back, uh, and she got it. So I, I won't repeat it, but but that's true. Um, and and my response to this, our response to be, ought to be, come on now, you're missing the point. Um, what if I look at any part of my my worship, our worship, when we're doing what the scripture says to do in worship, and I say, it just doesn't feel as good to me doing it that way. Well, I, that makes me tremble because. How I feel about it is really not the question. Now, the truth is that worshiping does make me feel a particular way. It does fill, fill me with emotion every week. Uh, did you ever cry during worship? Uh, it's not such an uncommon thing for me. And I'm not saying that to boast. I mean, I just, there are just times in my life when uh, burdens, I mean, I just need to get to worship. I just need to pray. I need to sing. I need to be with Christians, and, and it's when you eat the Lord's Supper and you hear the man get up, whoever he is, and he talks about the cross. It's a very emotional thing. But, but that's, a, that's a byproduct of the point. Is that the first bell? Good, good. That's a byproduct. That, that's a, a blessing, but I'm not, I'm not motivated by that. I'm not saying let's do worship a different way because... It gives me emotions. We're going to, you know, the primary thing is to obey God, and that's what we must do. Well, please do. I like what you're saying. You're doing good. Having grown up in the church, 
Hearing you say that um, makes me tremble just a little bit because it can't be about me. It's not really about me. Um, and I would want, before that bell catches us, the Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. But it also says that the Father dwells in us. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they'll be my people. Here's 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. Ephesians three seventeen, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, Christ dwells in your hearts. By faith. Does, does the Father dwell in you? Yes. Does the Son and the Spirit dwell in you? They do. They do. How? Second John 9. Who, whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine and the teaching of Christ hath not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, the Bible, has both the Father and the Son. I love the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I truly love Him. He's, he is not merely a, an abstract influence like the wind. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. And He is thinking... He is expressive. Uh, he is God. And I, I, we make a mistake, and sometimes you, you feel it when, when reference is made to wanting to go to heaven so I can be with the Father and the Son. Uh, well, I do, but excuse me. You know, I, I want to be with the Holy Spirit too, don't you? I, I, mean, I understand it. I understand that we don't know as much about His personality as we do the Father and the Son, but nonetheless, He's God, and one day you and I are going to assemble together at the throne and we will be with him forever and it'll be great to be able to thank him for all that he's done for us and uh, most especially for revealing, inspiring, and confirming the word of God that illuminates our pathway to heaven. Thanks for coming. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's word brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at collie at westhuntsville.org.